Welcome to This Week in Private Markets, a podcast by TAP. We give investors, allocators, advisors, and others a weekly digest that keeps you in the know about the news in private markets. Please see the show notes for relevant disclaimers. This is the week of September 18th, and this is what we at TAP saw in private markets. We'll start, as always, with the week's big deals. Goldman Sachs raised $15 billion for a secondaries fund. We always love to see that. Galvanized Climate Solutions raised over $1 billion. Lower Carbon raised $550 million. And uh, as I suppose is typical, blasts other VCs for um, taking blood money and not doing the right thing. Blockchain Capital raised $580 million for two crypto funds, um, despite everything that's happened with crypto. That's it for the big deals. Let's move on to the week's main stories, starting with the big question, is the IPO window back open? We've had a couple of really high-profile IPOs here, Arm, Instacart, Clavio. Um, they're all down a little bit from their pretty strong opens, uh, very strong opens, actually. So I think they all popped something like you know, 15 20%. They've all since declined about 15 to 20%. Um, but Arm is still a $53 billion company, Instacart an $8 billion company, and Clavio an $8 billion company as well. There are more companies uh, such as Birkenstock, Turo, and maybe even Liquid Death waiting in the wings. Um, what do we think, fellas? Are, are the floodgates open? Are the animal spirits alive? I think we have no idea. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, look, it's it's three sizable IPOs. They obviously did kind of well on their first day or couple of days of trading they've since um you know declined a bit uh, i think clavio and instacart are probably around an eight or nine billion dollar market cap around perhaps where they started or where their ipo pricing was armed down a little bit still above a 50 billion dollar market cap which is you know I, I think around where the ipo priced um so i mean look i feel like that's honestly decent um, but it's only been a few days so i mean let's see how these companies perform obviously they're still in the lockup um, you know, folks can't actually get quite get their liquidity just yet. Um, so I, I'm not sure. Um, you know, I, I don't think we'll really be quote unquote back until perhaps there's, you know, um, a really stable forward looking view on what the Federal Reserve is doing with interest rates. I think, you know, most economists expect one more rate hike this year, although, of course, there wasn't one earlier this week. Um, so, yeah, look, I, I don't know. It seems like these guys are kind of doing okay. They're holding up, but again, it's only been a few days. Um, I, I think feel like I feel like the, the the first few days is what matters. Like that's what IPOs are about. Is day one. Thomas is talking about day two. They fell here. Go look up an article on these. There's no articles about day two. No one cares about day two. It's all about day one. And you know, Thomas also mentioned that there's a bunch of other guys in the wings lining up to get in. Like that's what the IPO window is. It's the big news pop on day one and the continuing flow of new companies that are coming in to IPO. So I think we are back. Yeah, we'll see. I'm not so optimistic. Um, okay, I, I'd like to so, disintegrate so, in value, you know, in the coming weeks. Who knows? I, I don't know. They're being tested by the public markets for the first time. So, you know, we'll just have to see. So, okay, so Adam's pessimistic. Yeah, Adam's pessimistic. Jeff is optimistic. I'm going to go in the middle. I think we're right in a... A short little Goldilocks window here where it peaks off landing. Say, Adam would say he's realistic, you know. He's not pessimistic at all. I mean, it, <laughs> it could well be something. Um, but I'm not necessarily saying, you know, I can't, I can't ordain this be the opening of the IPO window. 
Uh, we just don't know. I mean, it's been it's a couple companies, right? And um, you know, we, we don't know yet. There's still plenty of potential shocks out there that could close this very quickly. So maybe maybe the the short Goldilocks period is is the right way to characterize it, as you say, Thomas. Well, let me drop a couple more interesting nuggets in here. Um, it, particularly for Instacart, obviously the valuation is now eight billion dollars. I think at their peak they were worth in the high thirty billion dollar range. So. Basically, everyone that's invested over the past, I want to say, three or four years has down massively on their investment. Yeah, yeah expected. Um, you know, no surprise there, of course. A lot of folks lost if they invested in, invest in the past few years. Some of the marquee venture fund managers, one, initialized. I think I saw they turned $150,000 investment into $17 million. Uh, Sequoia and Dreesen, all those guys who were in early on Instacart did great. The folks who were in late did not so great. I'm interested to see, you know, how they even IPO'd these companies. There are so many investors who are supposed to, or who must have lost money here, who usually on their securities have a preference and uh, often don't have to convert into common. Um, so I'm interested to see, you know, how they actually got that done. But they did get it done, and uh, now they're out there trading publicly. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, good question. <laughs> this is a good question. Yeah. Um, I, you know, before we move on, I do want to just add one more note of optimism. Clavio is an email marketing company. And man, if there was a segment that I thought was played out, I thought it was email marketing. So to see this company growing quickly and doing well, uh, that's excellent. Yeah, they had about $320 million in in uh, the first half of this year, um, which was up about 50% from last year. Um, they swung from, I think it was a Something like a $25 million uh, loss in the first half of 2022 to a $15 million profit. So getting profitable very quickly, uh, growing quickly as well. But yeah, kind of a, a, a not an AI company, uh, that's for sure. Yeah, the AI companies are still all way too early. But let's move on to another big public company, the PE giant Blackstone. They are now part of the S&P 500 with a market cap of $135 billion. Discuss. I think it's uh, it's interesting why they were kept out in the first place. You know, Blackstone was one of the largest companies in the world that was not in the S and P five hundred or in the U S. that was not in the S and P five hundred, and they had you know hundred billion dollar plus market cap, but they were structured originally as a partnership. Then they converted to a corporation in twenty nineteen, but um, you know. That also didn't because they had this multi-class share structure, didn't actually let them get into the S&P 500. So Standard & Poor's, I guess they changed their rules or just decided to let them in anyways. Um, there's only, from my memory, there was only a couple other um, companies in the S&P 500 with this multi-class share structure, Berkshire Hathaway being one of them, who we've talked about before, is actually kind of like one of the first uh, private equity uh, funds in the world. Totally. Um, but uh, they had a multi-class share structure, an A and a B. And but yeah, they they looks like they let Blackstone in. Um, kind of a seminal moment just to join this. Obviously, drives a lot of demand. There's been about nine percent return on the stock since they joined. So there's just a lot of index funds and other things that are tied to the S and P 500 that now are forced to buy Blackstone when they couldn't before. Yeah, I mean, I think this is on balance good. Um, I mean, it's good for for the. You know, sort of investment community. Um, those who do invest in index funds. I mean, Blackstone was one of the largest market caps out there. You know, that was not in the S and P. 
Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see if other, you know, large alternative asset managers that are public, you know, notably Apollo or KKR, um, you know, eventually follow suit. But I mean, look, insofar as, you know, I mean, we've obviously taken a position that, you know, alternative asset management will continue to grow and diversify and these companies will, will continue to get larger, right? Insofar as that's true, I mean, I think this is good for, you know, those more passive investors, those retail investors investing in index funds, you know, to be able to get more exposure, you know, to the growth in, in, in these types of businesses. So um, I, I frankly do expect the other ones to follow suit. Um, it, it is a little bit of, of uh, keeping up with the Joneses phenomenon here, you know, in this world. Um, we've seen this in other sort of ways manifest itself in other ways in asset management with these firms acquiring, you know, or growing wealth management units or or insurance businesses, you know, under their umbrella organization. So, you know, again, these 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 private equities, traditionally private equity giants will continue to grow, I'd imagine, and, you know, provide that expo- providing that exposure uh, from an investment perspective to the investing public. You know, it's probably a positive thing given the the secular view. You know, we have at least on on where these businesses are going. Okay, very good. We move on. The FTC is suing a large PE backed anesthesia provider that has been pursuing a roll up strategy. So in this case, the FTC is basically alleging that the company U.S. Anesthesia Partners, which was created by the PE from Welsh, Carson, Anderson, and Stowe in 2012, have basically been trying to monopolize the market in Texas and um, eliminate alternatives and drive up prices for anesthesia. So in addition to just being a roll-up strategy, basically they were you know, uh, uh, working on price-setting agreements with any independent anesthesiologists or just generally trying to keep uh, other alternative providers off of their um, turf. I think this is a pretty crazy moment in PE. This is, like, this is, this is a pretty big one here. Um, roll-up strategies are kind of explicitly formed to do this. Um, to create market power. I mean, that is, there's some idea that there's synergies when you do roll-ups, but a lot of it is to make sure that you have power in the market. And uh, they're challenging that here. And they're going after the the, the private equity company uh, that, that did it, that put them together. So, I mean, I think it's a really big and important thing. I also will say that we've been talking here over the past months about all these articles that have come out about healthcare and how uh, when private equity invests in healthcare, is it worse outcomes and more expensive? And we kind of saw that there must be something coming down the pike where yeah. someone's going to be really interested in this. I think we now see who it is. I I, I do think that it's all kind of correlated here that these studies came out as a sort of uh, advance guard here for this particular suit here, which they've chosen healthcare, which is a very good place to start your battle. If this is really just about private equity roll-ups and targeting private equity in general, obviously you'd like to start somewhere where there's more of a voter population, where there can be more on the side of we should treat this as a public good and shouldn't allow monopolies is a good place to start. But it would have huge implications for the rest of private equity if these types of strategies were subject to FTC um, enforcement actions. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, like you said, Jeff, this is a good place to start. I mean, this is a kind of a hot button issue. Um, you, you may actually, you know, politically speaking, gets get a fair amount of bipartisan support here as well when, when it comes to actually regulating, you know, private equity ownership of healthcare. care. Um, so but but yeah, I mean, I think the question is, you know, does this 
uh, you know, th this will be perhaps litigated and, and make its way into, you know, the Article Three courts, you know, our, our federal district courts and, and everything here in the United States. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting, right, how this is viewed by the legal system. Um, you know, will healthcare be carved out um, because, it, you know, it might, quote unquote, be viewed as a public good? Um, you know, I think it would be perhaps, you know, an overreach or a bit ridiculous to to kind of regulate this kind of roll-up strategy in different contexts. Um, you know, in, in a lot of ways, you know, roll-up strategy can can frankly be helpful to consumers. Um, you know, I, I don't know, I, when I was a lawyer, I did a bunch of, you know, building products um, acquisitions, you know, in a very similar roll-up strategy for a private equity sponsor. And, you know, because you you benefited from scale and, uh, and economies of scale and, and greater negotiating power, you were actually able to get better pricing and, you know, pass that pricing down to consumers. Um, so it's not necessarily negative in all contexts. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if healthcare is carved out. You know, I don't know, there's just something icky about um, such private, uh, or I don't know, I don't even know how you want to describe it, quote unquote, capitalistic ownership over healthcare. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure I want to walk into a clinic um, that is, you know, owned by, you know, Welsh Carson or any other, any of their peers to be totally honest. Um, so something about this just doesn't necessarily feel right. You know, price fixing for anesthesia. I mean, I don't know. Come on, guys, people are, are going under the knife here um, or for uh, other serious surgeries. Right. So um, this doesn't necessarily feel feel right to me. Uh, but then again, I haven't read the FTC complaint, and and I do tend to think it could be over over. Uh, well, it's interesting, you know. That's what we were talking. That's what we we're talking about. Is that like, yeah. yeah, this is the right place to start if you did want to put it into other context. Um, this is the place where even you, someone who is very deeply in this industry, understands everything really well. Even you're like, uh, I don't know with uh, with with these types of services, I don't know about that. Um, but man, I mean, do you think it could have some sort of chilling effect if if this, you know, cause action, I mean, on this type of activity, right? Do you have to really get way more clear about whether or not you're going to be targeted here? I, I don't think that this is just about healthcare, right? I think that they've been talking about this ownership issue here, and you can, about this ownership, specific ownership issue here across different um, uh, industries for years at this point. I don't think this is just about healthcare roll-ups. I think this is about roll-ups generally. Yeah, they've been pretty explicit about that. The FTC, I would agree. Very good. Up next, private investment into sports teams. It's growing like crazy. Um, and not just investment, but also uh, valuations of teams and franchises. They're all basically ballooning over the past several years. Um, Pitchbook did a, a research report into um, private ownership of sports teams, and it seems about a third of U.S. pro sports teams are tied to private equity. Um, the report also found that 60 U.S. men's teams collectively are valued at $206 billion. And that's sort of the, the basically the, the universe of teams that are tied to private investing groups. So a, a large amount of value there. And um, perhaps no one's doing a better job of, of getting their beak wet than Goldman Sachs, which has launched an advisory team to help uh, really only with sports team deal making. And additionally, Goldman Sachs is preparing to offer their wealthy clients the ability to invest in private sports teams. Well, you know, vanity investing should be available to all of us. Um, but I mean, know, he's, he's, at, at least the high net worth individuals, you know, the wealth management clients. Sorry, Jeff, I cut you off. What were you saying? These types of sports deals, they they always seem like they kind of smack of the 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 venture type deals, right? There's a lot of prestige to be in the top ones. 
Uh, it's really limited for supply to come onto the market in in the in the best ones. And uh, it, you know, they often are done with syndicates where you assemble up the money of many, many, many people who want to be associated with the brand of the sports team or the venture startup, whatever it is. So makes a lot of sense, especially for Goldman to sell into their wealth unit. Obviously, it's a pretty big perk that you can become part owner in and probably, let's be real, get some sort of non-monetary benefits in your favorite sports teams uh, from around the country and the world. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. I, I mean, it, it it is super cool. Um, <laughs> Even you uh, guys, think you know, it's like yeah, really, it's one of the few contexts where you know you can sort of invest because it's just really really cool, and perhaps you don't even really care that much about how the investment does. I mean, I, I I'd like to see some data on how you know quote unquote sports, however you define that, sports investments do over time. I imagine some do incredibly well, right? I mean, you know, you look at kind of Liberty Media. And their acquisition of, of Formula One from Bernie Ecclestone. And, you know, uh, perhaps without Netflix, they wouldn't have been able to do this. But obviously, Formula One's killing it. And, and there's no doubt that, um, you know, the sports popularity and profile has grown. And, you know, the investment has, has only grown in value, surely, um, from, from its prior um, ownership. Um, but then, you know, I, I, I got to imagine some of, these, some of these investments are, frankly, probably not, not very good. Um, I think... Oh. What they're doing, though, is they, they're continuing to open these investments to more and more investors, which yeah. is one of the that I think they are doing better. Before, they weren't really viewed as investments uh, so much as they were purely passion projects to own a team that you loved and as the owner poured your heart into. But, mm. you know, I remember Steve Ballmer paying billions of dollars for the Clippers. And, you know, there's been all these things where the, the value of these teams has gotten marked up, marked up. I'm sure they've done really well if you were to, you know, look at this historically. But they're also opening up ownership so much that there's more more capital coming in all the time. You know, you see all this capital coming into college football now as that's gotten more commercialized. And uh, I'm interested. The thing I think that could be eventually be the big unlock is when can they make it so that the average fan of a sports team can be an owner in that sports team? That's going to be the crazy unlock because hell yeah, I want to do that if I'm one of these sports teams. Heck yes, I want to open up every one of my fans to be literal owners in this team. They are going to be lifetime lovers of the team. Um, buy more merch and do all this stuff. I would absolutely allow that. Well, you know, I mean, that's the original model, right? With a lot of these these private sports clubs. I mean, if you if you still go and you you know you visit some soccer clubs, for example, in in South America or you know, even some clubs in Europe. I mean, they are all member owned. Um, you know, you would you would join a club, whatever your childhood club in your town or your city, and you know you'd play whatever. You know, you it'd be almost like your country club, right? And, and members would actually have ownership over the teams, and and they would benefit from you know the team's success and you know follow the team's failures. You know, obviously with the rise of, I mean, with the professionalization of sports, and and I mean this started obviously you know hundred years ago perhaps, and and um, has only you know reached these very, very extreme levels, perhaps in the, in the last, you know, decade or so, um, you know, that's become less, you know, less common. And, you know, wh why, why stay member owned when, you know, the, you know, Abu, Abu Dhabi investment authority will, you know, buy you for, I don't know, $5 billion. Because, because your, your members are your customers and they're going to, it's going to be a big deal when they're invested in you. So, I mean, I think there's a full circle aspect to this, right. Where you come back and you have, you know, the, the, the sovereign wealth funds, of the world and 
all of the 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 normal folks who want to go to your games and want to be owners and want the team to do well on a monetary basis. I mean, I think that the main reason people love sports in the first place is because they bet on them, or at least they have a fantasy team uh, that they that they sort of have something at stake. And so when you watch the game, there's something really big at stake for you, whether it's money or just you know pride. Um, but this puts would put that into the next layer. It'd be a multi-year thing where you want this team to do well over the course of a decade because not only will you uh, enjoy you know the team doing well, but you'll actually have monetary benefit from it. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, you, you'll see in a lot of these sports investments that you know money simply isn't enough. You know, it can take 10, 15, 20 years um, for these things to to, to play out. Um, and you know, I think a lot of that just has to do with the fact that you know sport to build a brand in sport is among the hardest things in the world to do. Um, you know, you, you see teams in, in various leagues around the world who might be in a 10 year slump. Um, it does not, you know, do much to damage, you know, their allure to, to players, you know, who were kids, you know, watching these teams, you know, be, be powerhouses. Um, so, you know, we'll see. It makes you wonder if, if money is enough. I mean, it clearly is not. I, I, I do tend to think that some of these examples of, you know, almost almost pairing other forms of media with the sports takeover have shown to be really, really powerful. Obviously, you know, Netflix and Formula One is, is, is one very extreme example, but you see it in other cases. I think you need to go to a new fan base because yeah. it's really hard to tear people away from one team, even if they're doing badly and get them to another team. But if you bring Formula One to the U.S. and no one knows who, who they love, right, then you can set up new new teams or, or, or bring in, you know, new fans into your uh, product. Yeah, very true. I mean, just look at, you know, look at Ryan Reynolds and his little Welsh, you know, Welsh soccer team, uh, I think was been promoted for the first time in 15 years and got its own Netflix special. So I know, was it the $21 million, I think, or $15 million they injected into the team or was it Netflix that uh, inspired the players to win uh, and and avoid relegation? Uh, I don't know. But uh, anyway, I'd love to do this, obviously, if I could. To me, it doesn't matter too much of this if this makes money or not, but I'd love to own a part of my favorite teams, obviously. But a Goldman. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. All right, let's move on to the next story. The Partners Group CEO uh, has been uh, quoted saying that private equity is entering a new era of consolidation in light of the sort of um, fundraising headwinds and general sort of market climate. Uh, I'll just kind of read what he told the Financial Times and we can kind of discuss from there. All right. So he said, it is really only the large players that can withstand the forces reshaping the private markets industry. We could see the current 11,000 or so industry participants shrink to as few as 100 next generation platforms that matter over the next decade. And of course, with participants, he means basically, you know, PE firms, private markets players. So going from 11,000 to 100. And um, of course, Conveniently, Partners Group is one of the biggest with 142 <laughs> billion AUM. So I imagine they are one of the hundred next generation platforms he's talking about. And what do you guys make? Talking down, he's, he's talking down his acquisition targets. He's like, you know what, you're going to be gone <laughs> in ten years. So exactly ahead of time. It's kind of crazy. I mean, 100, uh, uh, 11,000 participants. That's uh, feels a lot like a cottage industry. You know, you got yeah. all sorts of people of different sizes. You can go start up a little one yourself, right? And then you get to a hundred and that's, that's, that's tiny in terms of number and huge in terms of size. So you're dealing with something that looks more like some things in public markets where you got Van Go- Vanguard, you got BlackRock. I mean, you know, there's huge, huge players. 
look, he's probably right in the long run. He might be off in terms of the, the timing, but he's probably right in the long run. You know, whether it's technology or really just investor appetite is what I think he's really talking about when he talks about the the design, the, the things that are shaping industry demand. And I think it's really investors are looking for these platform players that can offer them just broad exposure to private markets rather than specialized, you know, folks who they think are particularly good at one asset class. Um, you know, outside of venture, it seems like folks are really looking for like a, the broad pantheon of being able to, you know, grab uh, and build a portfolio much easier and using use technology to do that rather than get diversification rather than have to go build a giant program um, with a bunch of different managers, a bunch of different data sources, and all this stuff that's difficult to do. So, so are you basically saying that small scale and like really specialized PE is totally going away, or you're saying it'll exist under the umbrella of one of these sort of, you know, buffet style uh, large players? I think that he's probably wrong. I think he's right, perhaps in the very long term. But there's no reason why some of these forces I'm talking about couldn't be solved by working with certain intermediaries, whether it's like iCapital or something like that. Right, right. Good where, point. You know, you can get a bevy of solutions all in a standardized um, package and sort of compete with the Blackstones of the world. Now, whether or not he thinks that that means that there's still 11,000 players or or is that really just one player that's the marketplace in between in between them all? I don't know. But it seems like there should be ways for the small folks to be competitive with yeah. the really big uh platforms and you know continue to sort of make the market more efficient find the little pockets of inefficiency and do all the things that specialized players are better at than the big slow moving guys yeah i mean there's obviously a role for you know middle market and lower middle market and you know even the smallest of, of pe fund complexes i mean there are funding gaps you know among smaller and medium-sized businesses to fill um i mean like will there be consolidation i mean of course right i mean there's eleven thousand. PE, you know, fund complexes, it seems, um, which, which honestly, just given the amount of, you know, smaller funds I've talked to in my career doesn't even shock me at this point. Um, there seems to be a guy with some money, you know, in every small or medium sized city in the country, um, you know, quote unquote, practicing private equity. Um, it, it's possible this is just, you know, more cyclical, right? I mean, look, we've obviously um exited an era of of um unprecedentedly low interest rates um those are obviously higher raising money is higher this industry is becoming more competitive so of course there will be consolidation there will be fun wind downs and you know folks will be out of jobs or will be joining larger teams um and sort of have safety in numbers so you know uh, like any industry i mean i think you know there will be periods of consolidation there will be periods of proliferation you know when the capital markets are more uh forgiving you know, I think there are obviously parallels to to VC managers, and you know, I think last week we discussed some of these efforts. Um, you know, from from folks like Sapphire and and others to actually um, continue to fund um, emerging managers within venture. You know, I yeah. think that you know perhaps arguably more important. I mean, you know, you're sort of funding you know innovation in a lot of ways um, that perhaps is not funded. Right. And you don't sort of know, you know, who the secret geniuses out, out there are with the great investment theses and, and everything. Um, but even here, right. It's it, it, to the extent there are funding gaps in, in smaller businesses who, who need that private equity capital, you know, it, it frankly would be a shame to kind of lose that, um, you know, just because smaller managers or more specialized managers don't have, um, 
you know, the ability to raise funds. So anyway, look, I, I hope this is cyclical. It's great to give you know, enterprising people a chance to invest in VC or in private equity um, and pursue those strategies. So, um, you know, I, I don't think this is a, a trend for the next, you know, I, I don't know, 50 years, you know, I'm just making up sort of time horizons here, but I think it'll it'll be more cyclical um, and it'll follow the, the, the broader interest rate environment and broader capital uh, markets environment uh, more generally. Excellent. Well, let's wrap it up here. This has been another exciting week in private markets and we're signing off and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>